Well, good morning. If you don't know me, uh, my name is Adam and it's uh, great to be with you. It's uh, great to have you with us if you're a guest especially. Uh, and it's exciting to be able to open up God's Word together this morning. And I'd like to begin by asking you, have you ever felt like your life was in chaos? <laughs> have you ever felt like life was just out of control? Maybe you're thinking, Adam, I have kids, so my life is chaos. <laughs> but I wonder, have you ever gone through a season in life when things just felt chaotic and tumultuous and you had really no idea what to do? I'd say most of us can relate to that to some degree. <laughs> we all experience those times and seasons in life when it's just chaotic and tumultuous. In many ways, uh, 2017 has kind of been this way for me. It's been a, an amazing year, uh, but also a really big year. Molly and I have moved house, we had our first child, I, I went through my ordination exams, and so at times it's felt a little bit chaotic, and I'm sure you can relate. Sometimes we, we go through these seasons when life just feels out of control. And sometimes it's not just what is going on in our lives, it can be at times what's going on in the lives of people we know and love. Sometimes friends or loved ones get sick. Sometimes friends or loved ones go through relationship breakdowns or they lose a job. Sometimes life feels chaotic because of what's going on in the world around us. I mean, we've all seen what happened in Las Vegas in this last week or so. We all know what's going on in the Middle East. Even in our own community, we probably heard about the young boy that lost his life in an accident at the gym. Things going on in our world can feel chaotic and out of control. Sometimes our lives feel chaotic because of what's happening with us spiritually. If we're honest, we'd admit that sometimes we just don't feel that close to God. Sometimes we wrestle with sins that we just can't seem to to get past, no matter how hard we try. Sometimes we feel a lack of joy in our relationship with God and we look around at others and they seem to have it all together, but we just seem to be struggling. We can feel in chaos spiritually. And so we look at our lives, we look at the lives of people we know, we look at the world around us and things can feel chaotic and tumultuous. And sometimes we wonder, well, where is God in the midst of the chaos? Does God even care about the chaos of our world and, and of our lives? I'm certain that you've wrestled with these questions at some point in your life. And these are really important questions. And these are questions that we're going to be exploring over these next few weeks. Today we launch into a new sermon series called Life in Chaos. For the next little while we're going to be exploring the Old Testament book of Judges. Now I know that not all of us are probably familiar with Judges. Some of us have probably read it at some point. Some of us probably haven't. Maybe some of us didn't even know that there was a book called Judges in the Bible. And so I think the question that a lot of us perhaps have in our mind at the moment, is, well, why judges? Why are we devoting an entire term to exploring this book? What relevance does it have for our lives? 
Well, of course, aside from the fact that Judges is in the Word of God and so it's worthy of our time and attention, the truth is Judges is especially relevant for us. You see, the book of Judges records a time in the history of God's people when they were in chaos. In fact, Judges is one of the most disturbing and violent books in the Bible. It has instances of civil war and murder, abuse, domestic violence. In fact, the theme of Judges is really summarised in chapter 21, verse 25, where we read, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the theme of Judges right there. The people of God have turned their backs on God and the result, as we're going to see in coming weeks, is tragedy, devastation and chaos. The book of Judges has some very disturbing stories. And so we need to kind of be clear right up front that the Bible does not condone or approve everything it records. Let me say that again. The Bible does not condone everything it records. See, the Bible is a record of God's interaction with humanity. And the truth is, God is good, but humans are not. And the Bible is filled with the goodness of God, but it's also filled with examples of the failure of humanity. And so when we read the disturbing stories in Judges that we're going to be looking at in the coming weeks, we need to remember that these stories are not in the Bible as examples for us to emulate. They're not in the Bible because God approves of what happened. They are in the Bible because they record what actually happened. They record and reveal the consequences of rejecting God. And in fact, this is the relevance of the book of Judges for us. Judges is in the Bible to reveal to us the hopelessness of the human condition. It's in the Bible to reveal to us the consequences of rejecting God. But the book of Judges is also in the Bible to reveal our need for a true king and a true saviour. You see, though the book of Judges is disturbing and dark, it's also a book of hope. You see, no matter how bad things get in the time of the Judges that we'll be looking at, what we also see is that God never gave up on his people. And this is the message of Judges, and this is really the message of the entire Bible, that we are really, really bad, far worse than we think, but God is really, really, really good, far better than we imagine. This is the way Tim Keller puts it. And Tim has written a commentary on the book of Judges, so fair warning, you're going to be getting a lot of Tim Keller quotes in the next few weeks. But this is what he says. He says, The book of Judges shows us that the Bible is not a book of virtues. It is not full of inspirational stories. Why? Because the Bible is not about following moral examples. It is about a God of mercy and long-suffering who continually works in and through us despite our constant resistance to his purposes. Ultimately, there is only one hero in this book, and he's divine. 
When we read this part of scripture as a historical recounting of how God works to rescue his undeserving people through and out of the mess their sin brings them into, then it comes alive to us in our heads and hearts and speaks into our own lives and situations today. Judges is not an easy read, but living in the times we do, it is an essential one. The book of Judges is so relevant and so important for us. Now maybe you're wondering, well, what happens in the book of Judges? What is it about? What leads to this time of chaos in God's people, in in the time of God's people? Well, we get a clue in verse 1. In the book of Judges, what we see there is that it begins by looking backwards. This is what we read there in verse 1. After the death of Joshua. So Judges continues the story following on from a man named Joshua. Now who is Joshua and why does he matter? Well Joshua was the leader of God's people after the death of Moses. You might remember Moses was the man used by God to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. That's the story that we read in the book of Exodus. And Moses leads God's people, the Israelites, through the wilderness and he leads them to the edge of the land that God had promised to give to them. You see, many, many years earlier, God had made a promise to another man named Abraham. And God promised Abraham that he would give him many descendants and he would give his descendants land to dwell in, to live in. And so Moses, in fulfilment of this promise that God made to Abraham, he leads the people of Israel to the land of Canaan, the promised land. But before Moses uh, leads the people into Canaan, he dies. And so Joshua is the man chosen by God to lead the Israelites into Canaan and to take possession of the land. And this is the story that we read in the book of Joshua. And we read many amazing victories that God gives the Israelites as they enter into the land of Canaan and as they defeat the Canaanites and uh, move them out of the land. But as Joshua draws near to the end of his life, there's still much to be done. They still need to push out the remaining inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites. And this is reflected in some of Joshua's final words to the Israelites. Listen to what he says to them. He says, The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. And so, this is the context for the book of Judges. The twelve tribes of Israel have entered into the promised land that God has given them, but the job was not yet complete. They still had to obey God, be brave, and drive out the remaining inhabitants in the land of Canaan. And so, as Judges begins, there's this sense of anticipation and expectation. Will the tribes of Israel fulfil their calling from God? Will they take possession of the promised land? Will they build a society that is built upon love for God and love for one another? And, as we see in the opening verses of Judges, they make a pretty good start. Look at what we read in the the rest of verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? 
So here they are, they're inquiring of God's will, they're ready to obey God's will. This is a promising start and it leads to positive results. Look at what we see in some of the opening verses in Judges chapter 1. Then Judah, one of the tribes of Israel, went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. And in verses 8 to 10, And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev and in the lowlands. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron and they defeated Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai. And then verses 17 to 18, And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. And so they make a promising start. The tribes of Israel are obeying God and they're enjoying success. They're driving the Canaanites from the promised land. And this is exactly what God had told them to do. Now, I know that for some of us, the conquest of Canaan raises a difficult question. And that is, why and how could God send another, send his people in to conquer another people? How could God ask them to drive out these people from their land? I mean, it seems a little bit unjust. It seems a little bit unfair. It seems a little bit imperialistic, doesn't it? Maybe you've wrestled with this question before. Maybe you've been asked this question. Why is God asking his people to drive the Canaanites from the land? Well, I think we need to recognise a few things. And the first thing we need to understand is that God has the right to do what he wants with the people he has made. If there is a God who has created and rules over all people, then this God has the right to judge the people he has made. He knows what people deserve and he has the right to act as he sees fit. Listen to the way the psalmist puts it in Psalm 115, verse 3. It says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. That verse can literally be translated, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he wants. Now, let's be honest. This is so contrary to the spirit of our age. This is so contrary to the human impulse which says, well, what about what I want? What about our rights? I don't think God should do what he wants. I think he should do what we want. I don't think God should do that. I think he should do this. Let's be honest. That that impulse is in all of us. And to be honest, the Bible responds by saying, well, God doesn't answer to you. You answer to him. You are clay in the hands of the potter, Romans 9. You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes, James 4. And you, the creature, who have been on earth for 40, 50, 60 years, you, the creature, are going to tell the eternal God, the creator, what he should do and how he should do it? That's kind of like parents saying to their two-year-old, well, hey, you have the run of the house now. We'll do whatever you want. We must recognise God's sovereignty. 
The second thing we must recognise is that the reason God wanted Israel to drive the nations out of Canaan is he wanted to protect Israel from idolatry and the worship of false gods. In Deuteronomy 20 verse 18, God warned them. He said, if you don't do it, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshipping their gods. We'll talk about them in a moment. And he says, and you will sin against the Lord your God. Tim Keller puts it this way, the purpose for driving out the Canaanites is not vengeful or economic, but spiritual. They are to be removed so that Israel will not fall under their religious influence. They were to build a home country to serve God in, a land where surrounding nations will be able to see the true God through the lives of his people. You see, God had a purpose for his people. It's summed up in Exodus 19 when God said to his people many years earlier, he said, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now what it means that Israel were to be a kingdom of priests is they were to intercede between God and the nations. Israel were to show the nations in the way that they lived and loved a glimpse of what God was like and the God that they worshipped. They were to be a display people for the goodness of God. But of course to do that they had to be distinct from the other nations. And this is why they were also to be a holy people. They were to be set apart, they were to obey God. And this is why God calls Israel to drive out the Canaanites, to protect them from the religious and moral corruption of the Canaanites. And this is the third thing we need to recognise. It's that the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, weren't innocent. I think we tend to have the picture in our mind of the the inhabitants of the land as kind of gentle farm folk who who were just being driven out of their, their beautiful land by the barbaric Israelites. But the truth is the Canaanites were far from innocent. Their religious practices included uh, cultic prostitution and child sacrifice. They were violent and oppressive. And God had already told his people, he'd made clear to Israel that the reason he's driving the Canaanites out of their land is because of their excessive wickedness. God said to them in Deuteronomy 9, he says, After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, The Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. It's not even because the Israelites are that good. (laughs) He says, no, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. And in fact, we really see an example of the the wickedness of the Canaanites a little bit earlier in Judges chapter 1. In the life of this king, this Canaanite king. Look at what we read about this Canaanite king in Judges 1. He gives us a glimpse into Canaanite culture. The Israelites, they found Adoni Bezek, which literally means the king of Bezek, one of the regions in the land of Canaan. They found him at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adoni Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Ouch. And Adoni Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off, used to pick up scraps under my table. Nice man. As I have done, so God has repaid me. Now, 
it's already a bad sign that the Israelites are treating the king of Bezek in this way. It's a sign that they have already been influenced by Canaanite culture, that they're treating him the way he used to treat others. But did you catch the king's perspective on this whole graphic ordeal? He did not say, God, this is so unfair. He said, God is repaying me for my wickedness. He's saying, God is just in driving me out. And it's interesting that we enlightened modern people take issue with this conquest of Canaan, but this Canaanite king who was conquered did not. He acknowledged the justice of God. The fourth thing we need to understand as we think about the conquest of Canaan is that God doesn't work this way anymore. See, in that day, Israel had very clear instructions and commands from God to carry out this conquest, to to enter into the land that God had promised to give them. But it was a unique, unrepeatable event. And with the coming of Jesus, God is at work in the world in a far different way. You see, Jesus came on a, a rescue mission to seek and save the lost. And when he came, he didn't take life, he laid his life down. He didn't bring judgment, he bore our judgment. He didn't demand justice, he extended mercy. And as followers of Jesus, as the people of God today, we are to follow him in this mission. One day Jesus will return and he will bring judgment and justice to God's world. But until that day, we are to extend mercy to people and to invite them into the kingdom of God, letting them know that God has done everything necessary for them to come to know him freely. And so this is some of the pieces of the puzzle that we need to make sense of the conquest of Canaan. And up to verse 18, the Israelites are doing a good job. They've made a promising start. In fact, if chapter 1 ended at verse 18, it would almost be totally encouraging. But it doesn't. Verses 1 to 18 are sadly the peak in this whole book. And verse 19 begins the horrific downward spiral that plagues God's people. Look at what happens in verse 19. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. So suddenly the Israelites face a little bit stiffer opposition, and they give in. They fail to completely drive out the Canaanites and they disobey God's command. And on the surface, we can kind of sympathise with the Israelites, can't we? I mean, chariots of iron, they're like the tanks of the ancient world and Israel didn't have any of those. They had foot soldiers and that was it. But the truth is, they failed to trust in God's promise and God's strength. You see, God had already warned the Israelites that they would face iron chariots when they entered the land of Canaan. And he told them that they could overcome them. Look at what God said to them in Joshua chapter 17. He says, Though the Canaanites have chariots fitted with iron, and though they are strong, you can drive them out. God had promised the Israelites that they could do it. But as soon as they faced them, they failed to believe and to trust God. And their failure to trust God's strength and God's promise, it led to their failure to obey God's command. 
And I wonder where in your life you might be failing to trust God and where it might be leading you to, fa- to, to fail to obey God. Perhaps you're failing to trust God to provide for your family and, and it's leading you to become stingy and ungenerous with what God has given you. Perhaps you're failing to trust that God loves you and has forgiven you. And it's leading you to look for love in other places. It's leading you to become harsh and critical of others. Maybe you feel God is is calling you to step out and to do something risky. But you're not trusting him and you're not stepping out to, to do that. You see, Israel's failure to trust God led to their failure to obey God. And sadly for them, it begins a downward spiral. And their excuses for their failure to trust God get even weaker. Look at what we read in verses 27 to 35. But Manasseh, Manasseh is one of the other tribes of Israel. Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bashan or Tanakh or Dor or Ublaim or Megiddo and their surrounding settlements. Why? For the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. Or we go on in verse 35, and the Amorites were determined also to hold out in Mount Herez, Ajalon and Shalbim. So the Israelites failed to drive out the Canaanites not because of superior military equipment, but simply because of superior determination. We asked them nicely, but they said no. So we walked away. Their failure to trust God leads them to their failure to obey God. And sadly, it gets even worse. They not only disobey God, but they begin to exploit their disobedience. Look at what we read in verse 28. When Israel grew strong, that is, when they had the ability to fight back in their own strength, what happened? They put the Canaanites to forced labour, but did not drive them out completely. They see a way to make money, but it's at the cost of disobeying God. And this is the downward spiral of Israel. It begins with hope, but it ends in half-hearted compromise and disobedience to God. God told them that they would face difficulties, iron chariots, but he also told them that he would be with them and that they could overcome them. In other words, God said to Israel, you can. But when Israel saw the iron chariots and the difficulties, they said, we can't. And in fact, what Israel are really saying is, we won't. We know God's promise, but we won't believe it. We know God's strength, but we won't rely on it. We know God's command, but we won't obey it. And let me ask you, where... In your life, are you saying to God, I can't? When perhaps you're actually saying, I won't. Maybe in the area of forgiveness. Maybe you'd say to God, God, I know I should forgive this person. I just can't. Now, I know forgiveness is really, really difficult. But often we refuse to forgive someone, not because we can't, but because we won't. We won't let go of our anger or our bitterness. We won't let go of our right to get even. We use the excuse that we can't, but it's that we won't. 
Or maybe it's in terms of our integrity and telling the truth. Maybe we say, God, if I was totally honest at work, I would lose my job. I can't tell the truth. What we're really saying is, God, I won't tell the truth because I don't want to pay the price. Or maybe you'd say to God, God, I just can't tell him or her the truth. It would destroy them. It would destroy me. What we're really saying, God, if I tell them, I'd be humiliated and I would destroy our relationship. I won't risk that cost. Maybe it's in temptation. God, I know it's wrong, but I just can't can't stop doing it. I can't say no. And in a sense, we're right when we say this. I mean, we can't overcome sin with just our sheer willpower. But we can humble ourselves. We can seek God's help and we can reach out to others. 1 Corinthians 10 puts it this way. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Where are you saying to God, I can't, when in reality you're saying, I won't? Friends, this is so important. Because small areas of compromise and disobedience that are left unchecked, they will eventually become large areas of disaster. And some of us need to get honest with God. Get real with one another. We must learn from Israel's failure to trust God. We need to ask the question, well, why didn't Israel trust in God's promises? If the root of their problem is their failure to trust in God, then why didn't they do it? What led to this failure? Well, for the first time in the book of Judges in chapter 2, God speaks and he gives them the answer to this question. Look at what God says through the angel. Now, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. And that's the story of Judges. But what is the reason for Israel's failure to trust God? It's that they forgot who God was and they forgot what God had done for them. They forgot that he is the God who rescues. I brought you up from Egypt. They forgot that he is the God who always stays faithful to his people. I will never break my covenant with you. Now, does this mean they didn't know about God? Does this mean they didn't know about what God had done, about the Exodus and and the Red Sea and the walls of Jericho? Of course they knew those stories. But the truth of those stories was no longer precious to them. And the God of those stories was no longer real to them. They'd forgotten. And God's point here is to say to his people, I rescued you from Egypt. I promised to always be with you. Why wouldn't you trust me? Why wouldn't you trust me to overcome those chariots? Why won't you trust me even in small things? Let me ask you, do you trust God with your eternal salvation but don't trust him in your day-to-day life? 
You, you might have come to church your whole life. You might say that you believe in Jesus, that he paid for your sin, that he's made a way for you to know God and come to God and be with him forever. But do you trust him in your day-to-day life now? I read a great quote this morning. It says, if you can trust God to save you for eternity, you can trust him to lead you for a lifetime. See, a God you can trust with your eternity is a God you can trust with your budget, with your sexuality, with your marriage, with your parenting. A God that has paid freely for your sin and your rebellion is a God you can trust with all of your daily needs. A God that overcame death and the grave is a God you can trust with your future. He is the God who will never break covenant with his people. He is the God who is always faithful. Have you forgotten this God? You might know the stories, you might know the facts, but is the truth of who this God is and what he has done for you, is it precious to you? Is it central to you? Or have you forgotten And I've got to be real honest with you. This year, I would say, I'd forgotten God. You know, I'm busy doing, busy studying the Bible, but perhaps the reality of God's presence wasn't precious to me. And the Lord did a real work in my heart this morning in my office. forgotten he is far too great far too good for us to forget and maybe some of us this morning need to acknowledge that we too have forgotten our great God and you know our God is so gracious because he knows that there are going to be times when we forget And so he's given us the Lord's Supper. A visible reminder of what he is like and what he has done for us in and through the Lord Jesus. You see, every time we hold these elements in our hands, and I'd like to invite the helpers to come up and get in position for me. Every time we hold the bread in our hands, which represents the broken body of the Lord Jesus. Every time we hold the cup in our hands, which represents the spilt blood of our Saviour, we are reminded that because of Christ's death on the cross, we are forgiven our sins. We are righteous before God. We are loved by God. Not because of anything we've done, not because we deserve it. We are undeserving but because of God's great love. This is what the Apostle Paul writes about Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, this morning, if you would say, I've forgotten. I've forgotten the goodness and the greatness of God. Then as you come forward this morning with the empty hands of faith, to receive what God has freely given to us in Jesus, and you confess to God that you've forgotten, remind your heart of what God has done, and then give thanks to God for what he has provided for us in Jesus. See, this is who the Lord's Supper is for. Those who are genuinely sorry for their sins, have genuine faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, and genuine thanksgiving to God for all that he has done. And if that's you, the ushers will invite you from the back to the front. If you're in the side aisles, please come down the very outer aisle and then back through those two there. If you're in the middle, please come down this very centre aisle and go back through those aisles, back to your seat. And we will eat and drink together as we remember who our God is and what he has done for us in Jesus. Come church, all things are ready. Thank you.